Hello, you're listening to whatever you set your mind to. I'm your humble narrator. We have quite a program lined up for you tonight, so let's get to it, shall we? We'll be leading with a poem written by Inbar Fink and read by Marina Snyder. Go. Go to the forest. Look for a wolf. You'll recognize it by its footprints in the heavy snow, by the trail of blood dripping from its mouth. It's howling by the moonlight, by the silver pillars standing by the road. Take a big knife with you, a kitchen knife. The cowards take swords, but you're brave. Your coat is heavy and the wind is cold. Go to the forest. Take an amulet for protection. Take large steps in heavy boots. You'll meet the wolf. You'll recognize it by the blue tattoos on its skin. And it'll recognize you by your red curly hair. Its teeth are sharp and yellow. Its breath melts the snow. It'll be by the moonlight, in the clearing. It'll jump on you and try to rip your throat. You will not be afraid. Your knife will stick in its heart. Your blood will mix and stain the snow. And I will go to the forest in black robes. I'll go to your grave to mourn you, my child. And you're not dead. And you're running on four under the full moon. The silver pillars guard you. Red fur and silver tattoos on the snow melting near springtime. Go to the forest. Look for me. That striking poem was entitled About Wolves. While I have your attention, all the music you'll be hearing tonight is provided by the brilliant David Snyder. Our next segment is by a man known only as Bocage and is entitled Fui Nori and the Invention of Flight. Take it away, Bocage. Long after the bat and folk hero Fui Nori had charmed fruit out of the trees, but before she and her bitter enemy Blackwire had made their peace, a rumor trickled through the forest where the bats lived. The rumor spoke of a single tree standing alone on a desolate cliff beyond the dried and cracked flats of Baldez, and on that single tree, the only one for miles, grew a single fruit, the juiciest, sweetest, and most delicious that would ever be had. It wasn't clear how the fruit was known to be juicy and delicious if it was the only of its kind, but it was a popular rumor in the forest. Bats would hear of it, lick their lips in speculation, and then pass it further on. Many even talked about going to get the legendary fruit, but a delicacy located up a cliff was daunting, so they stuck with local fare. Except for Fui Nuri, of course. She had been out of the forest on an adventure to the big water, but when she returned and the rumor crossed her ears, she politely excused herself after another hour of chit-chat and made preparations to re-embark. Her recent experiences served her well in navigating the parched flats, and with a little help from a hermit living in a shell, she found the cliff of the reputed fruit. Her journey across the flats and up the cliff fill a story all their own, but such is the case with Fui's life. After an eventful climb, Fui reached the top of the cliff, and to her excitement, found a single tree determinedly growing out of the bare rock of the cliff top. From one of its highest branches hung a swollen red fruit, nearly bending the branch under its weight. 
The fruit was the only spot of color on the tree, which was otherwise bent, brown, and withered, looking as if all of its vitality had gone into growing that single fruit. Fui circled the tree, planning the best route to the top when she heard a familiar voice. Her bitter enemy Blackwire came spiraling down off of the tree and cornering her against the edge of the cliff. She was surprised to see him, but he explained that he was the one that had spread the rumors of the fruit, knowing that she couldn't help but seek it, all to lure her into an ambush. Having his own form of honor, he announced his intentions before striking. Fui was not normally a fighter, preferring to rely on her wits and agility, but that day she fought like a demon. It was a brutal fight, lasting through the night and until the next day, and Fui gave as good as she got. But she was not a large bat, and what she got was crippling. At fight's end, she lay on the clifftop, her skin flayed and her legs broken, and black wire loomed above her, bleeding and weary, but unbroken. He had her at his mercy, and he announced his intention. He would leave her to die of her injuries while he went off to lick his wounds, but he would return, as the last spark of life sputtered within her, to climb the tree and eat in front of her the fruit that had lured her to her death. So Blackwire left. Fui lay under the sun for a day, unable to move, gathering her strength and singing to keep her spirits up, composing new songs in her head when she ran out. On day two, she moved into the shade of the tree with a great marshalling of strength. If she were able to get down the cliff, even broken as she was, she would be able to cross the flats safely. But it became clear to her she would never be able to climb down the cliff in the state she was in. All seemed hopeless, but at least she had some shade to die in. Laying beneath the tree, she noticed a dried leaf fall off the branch and slowly float to the ground. The idea didn't occur to her right away, but laying underneath the tree, she had nothing but time to think, and the image of the leaf sparked something deep within her. Throughout the second night, she worked, taking her flayed skin and sewing it to her arms and her broken legs, making a sort of makeshift dried leaf glider. By the third morning, she was ready. She toddled over the cliff and leapt, intending to glide to the ground and escape. But this isn't the story of how Fui invented gliding, is it? On her way down, she ran into a pillar of warm air, and with a joyful squeak of surprise, Fui discovered lift. She forgot all about her injured body and about her plan to escape as she flitted through the air, tumbling, looping, and almost running into the cliff, all while laughing with joy. She had not been a dour bat before, not by any means, but even she found new heights of excitement on her first flight. Who could hold anger or despair in their heart while soaring through the air like this? On a particularly exuberant loop, she gained enough height to spot the tree. She didn't even have to make a conscious decision. She flew to the tree and landed in its uppermost branches. She clambered through the branches, finding that her new body had much less grace out of the air until she could grasp the fruit in her hands and feet. She took a bite, and it was indeed the juiciest, the sweetest, and the most delicious fruit she had ever eaten. It was also the first food she had eaten in several days. She devoured the fruit carelessly, even beyond the level of comfort, getting the seeds and sticky juice in her fur. She rested up in the tree, and then resumed eating. She ate until the fruit was reduced down to a well-nibbled core. Finally, she snapped the stem to take the core with her. There was still some meat on it, and even though her stomach was stretched to a delightful fullness, it was good to have a traveling snack. But as she easily flew over the flats that had been such a journey on foot, she thought of a better use for the core. On the ground below, she spotted the long shape of Blackwire returning to the cliff. Swooping low, she called out to him, 
and then dropped the core to bounce off his head as he looked up in confusion. Laughing, she returned home to the forest, a much different bat than when she had left. Glad to hear you are still with us. We still have one more piece in defense of disused monsters, written and read by our own Zach Cooey. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank our creator and producer, Seth Aaron Hirschman of Whacked Productions, for providing my voice this evening. Next time we meet, he may not have that privilege, and he still might not the time after that. I think you'll find my voice, and most things about me, are variable. But worry not, faithful listeners, it is still me. I am always still me. Where was I? Ah, yes. Mr. Cooey, if you could do the honors. Over the past 42 years, the game of Dungeons & Dragons has produced a wide variety of monsters for players to battle against. Some are in every edition of the game, while some are only sporadically included in the monster manuals, and others are relegated entirely to one edition, never being renewed. One of my absolute favorite monsters, the Plump, was recently reintroduced to official D&D's 5th edition, and D&D owners Wizards of the Coast have announced another of my favorites, the Flail Snail, will be returning in a future adventure. But there's still plenty of old, cool monsters that have sadly been mostly forgotten. These monsters deserve more attention from game designers and fans, and I'd like to cover a few of my favorites, in no particular order, as well as what makes them interesting and how game masters can add them to their games. Number 1. The Elder Brain To start off, I'm kind of cheating. The Elder Brain is mentioned in the current 5th edition manual, though it is just a mention and it doesn't have its own stats. I've rarely seen it utilized, despite being associated with a relatively iconic D&D species, the Mind Flayers. The Elder Brain is a creature found at the center of a community of Mind Flayers. It's basically a giant mass of all the brains of every dead Mind Flayer from that community. It is the right and obligation of every Mind Flayer to have their brain joined with this telepathic hive mind upon their death, becoming one with the leader, or is it leaders, of the community. The Elder Brain can be used in a few different ways. It may be a major adversary for a group of adventurers bent on conquering the world and enslaving every non-Mind Flayer. A nigh-omniscient psychic brain pile could make a fascinating nemesis that's a little more interesting than the usual Lich King or Orcish Warlord. An entire quest could be made out of infiltrating a Mind Flayer city to destroy the Elder Brain at its center, which would be no easy feat considering the Elder Brain can detect and communicate with all sentient lifeforms within five miles of it. Alternatively, I've always liked the idea of a quest revolving around altering an Elder Brain, rather than destroying it. Maybe the adventurers were friends with an uncharacteristically friendly, surface-dwelling Mind Flayer whose dying wish was to have his brain returned to the Elder Brain, and the adventurers are the only ones brave enough to go on the quest to do it for him. Or perhaps in order to stop the attacks the Mind Flayers are waging on the surface, someone, maybe one of the adventurers, intends to sacrifice themselves by merging their brain with the Elder Brain to affect its goals. Maybe more than one person has to do this to make their voices outweigh those of the many ancient Mind Flayers that currently make up the brain. Or maybe the quest is to somehow steal or receive lost knowledge from the Elder Brain. There's a ton of things you can do with this concept. Number 2. The Grave Crawler. Gravecrawlers are undead creatures that resemble large maggots, which, considering they're undead, makes one wonder what exactly died and became these things. Gravecrawlers live in graveyards and feed on the rock of tombstones. 
They're actually one of the few varieties of undead that D&D presents as not being hostile, and in fact they can be rather friendly and helpful, though still dangerous. Once per week, a gravecrawler can speak with a dead spirit. Living people can use them as translators between themselves and the dead. But then comes the danger. Gravecrawlers have a magical ability that causes any living thing in their presence to slowly turn to stone for them to eat. They don't do it on purpose, it just kinda happens. As a result, any conversations between the living and the dead have to be very quick. Finding a gravecrawler and having a tense, high-stakes conversation with a specific dead person for some vital information could be a great plot point that could fit in many adventures. And just establishing that gravecrawlers exist could cause some player characters to go off on a side quest to speak with their dead loved ones. Number 3. The Alcada, aka The Wingless Wonder, aka The Walking Egg. Imagine the most pitiful creature in the universe, and you'll probably get something relatively like the Alcada. Alcadas resemble big, waddling eggplants with tentacles, googly eyes, and little arms that constantly flail up and down as if the creature is trying to flap non-existent wings. The Alcada has few attacks and no way of defending itself, and is entirely likely to just wander off a cliff. Altogether, it just really sucks to be an Alcada. It sucks so hard to be an Alcada, in fact, that most Alcadas you'll come across in the wild aren't actually Alcadas. Roughly 50% of all Alcadas are either A, demons or tricksters shapeshifted into the harmless form of the walking egg to deceive people, or B, people who were polymorphed against their will into the form of an Alcada by wrathful wizards, gods, or other people likely to curse someone. This monster exists purely so that evil witches can curse people into things more interesting than frogs. Using wild Alcadas in a game could cause very different player reactions depending on how they're used. If the first Alcada encountered is actually a stronger monster in disguise, your players will never fully trust Alcadas again. Additionally, villains can turn players or allies into Alcadas, initiating a quest to have the afflicted turn back. The Wingless Wonder's original monster entry even has rules for determining whether or not one goes completely insane for every year they spend unwillingly polymorphed into an Alcada. Every year. If your GM makes you play a character in the form of an Alcada for in-universe years, they're probably a bit of a tool. And also probably me. Number 4. The Thought Eater. Imagine a creature floating aimlessly, mindlessly, invisibly, through the ethereal plane on the edge of our reality. It can barely interact with our world and will die if made physical. It drifts and drifts in search of its favored food human thought. When it comes upon a human, it starts slowly draining their mind. First, it steals whatever magic spells or psychic powers you have. Then, it starts eating away at your intelligence. Eventually, your brain will have been drained, your body reduced to a soulless husk, still alive but vegetative, your entire personality consumed. And then, the creature will move on to some other poor sap who happens to be in the area. Now, imagine that creature looks like an emaciated, goofy-looking, dead-eyed platypus corpse. That is the Thought Eater. Besides their fantastic design, which is so often disregarded as stupid, Thought Eaters represent an interesting type of D&D monster. The bullshit kind. If you just randomly encounter a Thought Eater without preparation, you're probably dead. In most games, that's bad. It's not fun to lose your character to something random and unpreventable. The key to using bullshit monsters in standard, non-despicably hard games is preparation. 
A good GM somehow lets the players know if they're going into Thought Eater turf, such as by having non-player characters tell them rumors about people literally losing their minds in that area, so that the player characters can prepare themselves. And if they don't, then whatever happens to them is their own damn fault. Number 5. The Sue-Eyes I never see anyone talking about the Sue-Eyes, negatively or positively. The Sue Eyes is a bizarre-looking mass of feathery tendrils, feelers, and antennae, basically a big ball of sensory organs. They are intelligent and can speak, and tend to be hired out as guardians. It's not for their strength, in fact they're naturally cowardly and not particularly tough, but rather because they're basically sentient security alarms. The most amusing bit of their personality is that some Sue Eyes claim to have contacts in far-off independent colonies of Sue Eyes, but because the poor things can barely care for themselves, this is most likely a delusion that multiple members of the race have somehow come to independently. I usually hate races having inherent personalities, it's stupid that all black dragons are evil and all dwarves are violent, but the idea of a species that inherently believes there's some non-existent society of their kind is so hilariously specific that I can't help but love it. Perhaps the community could be used as an element in a quest, whether or not it actually exists. Though Suwises aren't good at fighting, they have a unique defense if combat starts going badly for them and their master hasn't come to help. They can psychically project their perspective of the battle into the mind of their attacker, with exaggerated details to make out the attacker as a horribly cruel monster. The attacker feels all the terror experienced by the Suwais. Its main attack is a psychic guilt trip. This is such a unique, detailed monster, yet I've seen only a handful of people talking about it, and most of those were me. The Suwais, despite being so unique, is probably the most traditional monster in this list in terms of possible use. You can give one to any powerful enemy with stuff that needs guarding. Maybe give a dragon a whole pack of Suwises stationed around its horde. Since Suwises are neutral and will serve anyone who provides for them, you could also put them in the employ of friendly characters, like being the assistant-slash-living doorbell of a friendly wizard living in a local tower. Adding a Suwise where you would normally put some sort of guardian golem or ogre guard or something makes things a little more interesting, and presents issues that need to be addressed through means other than regular old stabbing things. By now, I hope I've illustrated how there's plenty of more unique, underused critters to stock a world of adventure than the standard orcs, dragons, and gelatinous cubes. These aren't the only monsters that have been largely forgotten by the fanbase, so I encourage you to not only find ways to utilize the coolness of the five I've talked about here, but also look through old sourcebooks or the internet to see if you can find any other hidden gems I may have overlooked. So here we are, at the end of the show. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your night with all of us here, at whatever you set your mind to. If you wish to join us again sometime, you need only wait. Until then, I'll be handing things off to reality, which will hopefully also be interesting.